Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to RTB. Today we're covering the book of Job. So the book of Job is arguably one of the most famous, um, one of the most important books of the Old Testament, I think, just because it is so famous. And it's a book that I think transcends the Christian faith and is known all around the world because at the end of the day, it kind of tackles what is one of the greatest uh, difficult questions of life, and that is the question of suffering. And so the book of Job is referenced in a number of different kind of things. And so I think what we get a chance today is to see is how does the book of Job address this question of suffering? And especially not just any suffering, but innocent suffering, the suffering of the innocent, what seems to be a complete injustice. And in fact, probably is one of the biggest reasons why people tend not to follow God because they perceive in the world a sense of injustice, and there is this natural human desire for justice. So the hope of reading this book is we're going to see what Job um, gives us for the answer of justice and innocent suffering. And as I often say, though, we do have to remember that we have to read all of Scripture in the light of Christ and in the light of all of the New Testament. So if we just read the book of Job as such in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament alone, it will leave you kind of frustrated and a little bit disappointed. Um, But I hope to show by the end of this that there's actually some pretty incredible um, takeaways from this book and one that I think can really change the way you approach life and especially suffering in your life, okay? And so... um, Just the general plot is fairly well understood. There's a man named Job who is well off and everything is taken from him for no reason. He's completely innocent and maintains his innocence. He has several friends that come to him and try to just convince him to admit he's guilty and he doesn't. And there's this back and forth between him and his friends. And he always replies to his friends. And then there's there's three friends that visit. Then a fourth friend comes in with a voice. And then ultimately at the end, of Job, you have the voice of God that actually speaks. And then Job replies to the voice of God. And then you kind of, the book just ends abruptly. So that's just kind of the general plot. And so through this book, you actually kind of see this, this book itself could almost be a play, kind of written as a play with this opening and then this, this challenge and this response. And I think that's also just important to know of so much of our faith as Catholic Christians is this this invitation to, from God that he reaches out first and we respond. And you see, and we respond. So you see this back and forth response in the light of the book. Now, um, some of the background of this book is uh, where you find it in the canon is actually the first of the wisdom literatures because the setting of the book is actually well, well back in the time of the patriarchs. So you can actually think of this as kind of an ancient book Um, not long after the time of Abraham, perhaps, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in that sort of long time of the patriarchs. When the book was actually written and who wrote it is a great mystery um, and is much debated, but it's pretty clear from the characters and the names here that, um, that you can set it in the context of the patriarchs of 
the Old Testament. And what's also kind of a, a unique nuance of the book of Job is that it appears that Job himself is not an Israelite. He's not a Hebrew. So there is a sense where this book of Job really is kind of meant to be um, a book for the world, a book for genuine wisdom for so many different things as it relates to suffering and especially innocent suffering, okay? Um, the name Job itself is also kind of a unique name. Um, there's some debate over what it means, but basically it would mean something along the lines of enmity, persecution, or adversity. Um, so I think that's a nice, helpful thing. Many times Hebrew names do give us some sort of insight, and so Job is certainly one that uh, faces great um, um, adversity. And as we kind of go through, we'll look just at the general structure of the book, because that's going to give us the real key to understand the book. I think if you don't have a good picture of the structure of this book, and there is a fairly key, fairly clear structure with some, um, some, some debate and some um, textual issues for sure, but that clear structure helps us to understand what it is we're reading or where we are reading, because the book starts out with prose in the beginning, and ends with prose at the end, but in the middle is just a ton of biblical poetry. And that's where it's very easy to get lost, and I found myself often getting lost in the biblical poetry. So when we uh, go through the structure here in a second, um, that will help set the stage for how we kind of grasp the text. Um, the last thing before we do go into that structure and actually hit the text itself is just, again, we want to read this book in the light of Christ, because if there is a figure in the, if, if everything of Scripture points to Christ, Christ is the perfect example of innocent suffering. And so Job is very much a prefiguration of Christ, a prefiguration of this innocent suffering. And you'll even start to see there's kind of a cool sense where Job um, is also the second Adam, um, Adam in the garden facing temptation, facing trial, facing test. And that also fits very well because Christ is referred to as the new Adam. And so you have prefigurations of, of, um, of, of Christ, but then also Job as this new figure of Adam. And then lastly, um, actually, sorry, two more things, is one just in the Christian um, worldview, there's been many commentaries, much debate. Um, what I'll be providing is just a explanation for the text, by far not the only explanation. Um, for example, Thomas Aquinas wrote a beautiful, beautiful commentary on this text. And his kind of takeaway was that this book is, is all about divine providence. I think that's a unique kind of insight, too, that so many people focus on suffering, but he focuses on how this is really a question of divine providence guiding so much of human history and our stories. And that's why it's also a kind of key thing that's been brought up by some authors is that it's not just about suffering or innocent suffering at such, is that one of the claims that is made in this book is actually a claim against God himself, that God is unjust, of course, as we understand this sort of claim against innocent suffering. That's what we're wrestling with, this, this kind of worldly claim that God would be unjust. But also there's this second kind of hidden claim that Perhaps God is only loved because of what he gives. And that's kind of this, that God isn't lovable in and of himself. And that's what um, Satan sort of accuses God of subliminally here through Job, that you, you only have followers because 
they benefit you or you benefit them would be better said. And so that's kind of just an interesting theme we would kind of want to look at is, is what does this text ultimately say about God himself? Okay. All right. Now let's look at, you have a handout and that can be also found in the uh, description of the podcast for the outline of the book of Job. As I mentioned, there's a prologue, that's Job chapter 1 and 2, that's written in prose, where you start to see the kind of story unfold. And then the large, the basically vast majority of this text is this um, dialogue between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the general structure is that after this opening kind of prose is that these friends come and they give a speech and then Job replies and they give a speech and then Job replies and they give a speech and then Job replies and this happens um, essentially three times so Eliphaz gives three speeches with three replies from Job Bildad gives three speeches and then Job replies three times and then the third is interesting so far, and there's some textual interesting things about this. So far does not give a third speech, but then Job kind of replies in general with a sort of closing soliloquy and then a poem on wisdom, a sort of lament that he offers, and then this sort of oath of innocence that he gives. After all three of these friends kind of give their speeches, and some of the themes are repetitive. Some of them kind of highlight different aspects. But one, of the, one author really put it as basically the speeches get slightly shorter and more aggressive. <laughs> and basically the claims are, Job, you are a sinner, just admit it. And Job frustratingly maintains his innocence, but also is struggling in the midst of all of this as well. Then the structure comes, this man, Elihu, um, which means he is my God in Hebrew. He is my God is the name Elihu, comes in and gives one... Um, one final speech that kind of re again doesn't necessarily introduce that much new, but kind of re summarizes all of the speeches. And then, lastly, in chapter 38, you've got speeches from God Himself, where same format though God speaks, Job replies. God speaks, Job replies. That happens twice. And then at the end, the epilogue is the sort of restoration of Job, that He actually. Um, has prayer for his friends, and then his fortune is restored, and there is a sort of happy death of sorts. But again, even this happy death at the end, you kind of got to ask yourself, what was it all about? <laughs> because Job had so much, lost everything, is it really that happy? What is the point? What's the key takeaway? And I'll kind of have you hang on to that question until the very end, and I'll give you my thoughts, because I think um, one of the biggest takeaways I think is often underemphasized in many of the commentaries um, that you read. So with that, let's dive into the actual text. And you can open up your Bibles to the book of Job. So Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, 
and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So first it just sets the stage and it gives us right up front, Job is innocent and upright. The author gives us that right from the start. He's a man from the east, so not a Hebrew, not an Israelite, from Uz. And what's also it's important, and you'll see this at the end, this is, I think, absolutely essential, is Job is offering sacrifice. And classically, the sacrifice was only done by the priest. And that's actually in the Old Testament. This is why we can place this in the time of the patriarchs. It was the father that was the priest that was offering sacrifice for the family. And so Job is a man blessed with many temporal goods, but he's also an upright man who's offering sacrifice um, daily for his whole family. And so that's the kind of opening setting of this righteous priestly figure, Job. Next is where it gets interesting. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From going back and forth on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself do not put forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so first thing to notice in this this section is that it says there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. That term sons of God actually refers to angels. That's actually a very common Old Testament phrase, angels. So we understand that Satan or Lucifer to be a fallen angel, the highest of the angels. And the word Satan itself just means the accuser. And that's exactly what you're going to see is the role of, of quote-unquote, Satan is the accuser. Going to accuse here, it is Satan accusing God, right? Satan is accusing God of saying, Job only loves you because you've given him stuff. You take it away, and he's not going to be righteous. And interestingly enough, the Lord says, okay, you can take away his stuff. It's also just kind of important to note that what is Satan doing? Kind of roaming and prowling around the world, right? You actually see that sort of image in the New Testament where Satan is like a roaring lion prowling along, prowling around the world, seeking the ruin of souls, okay? And so whether this is referring to the classic Satan as such um, is a greatly debated point, but it is a representative of evil and certainly this understanding of the accuser, that this one is the one accusing of God, okay? And so what happens then is now we're going to just summarize the next kind of portion is basically Job does lose all of his property and his children. And one by one, and there's nice kind of poetical repetition in this section too, you can kind of see even in the prose, where one by one, everything is taken from him. And so then what is Job's response? Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came forth from my mother's womb, 
and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so the first test of Job, he passes with flying colors, this beautiful sense. I came with nothing, everything is gift, and I'll leave with nothing. I still will bless the Lord. Okay, so then chapter 2 starts where, once again, we get this repetition. So the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, the angels doing their work, ministering. And once again, Satan um, accuses God, accuses the Lord of saying that, well, you took away all of his stuff, but you didn't actually touch any of himself. And once again, you have a repetition again where God upholds Job as being a righteous man and allows Satan to take and to kind of fill his life with, um, basically with sores. And they're pretty, um, pretty painful and um, affect his skin. And again, then we can see in chapter 2, verse 9, um, what does Job do? Well, Job actually now has a second accuser, a second test, where his wife comes in and says, listen, clearly you've done something wrong. And this is the classic idea of wisdom or sort of justice is that I do something bad, I get something punished for it. And this is kind of this sort of mindset that we're going to see in so many of the different wisdom literatures. I do something good, I get rewarded. I do something bad, um, I get punished. And this book will kind of point out a few of the subtleties of that. So what does it say in chapter 2, verse 9? Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. I like to point out the what you have as curse God and die is actually bless God in the actual Hebrew. Um, but the connotation is clearly curse. So you can think of the, oh, bless your heart, <laughs> is actually a sort of negative. Is She's saying, no, this you have done wrong. Um, admit that. But then Job's response beautifully. If we receive good, should we not receive evil? Should we not receive suffering? And this is actually a very important point. The word evil or suffering is the same word in Hebrew. So whether we're talking about actual wrong or moral evil or just suffering, you kind of have to take from context. Okay, so that's the setup. All this stuff is taken away. We then enter into the last part of the prose as Job's three friends come. This is chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, they made an appointment together to come to condole with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from afar, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Okay, so Job's three friends come. The specific details about the friends, it's not that important, um, but it also shows that they're not Israelites. The Tamanites were um, a group that was from the son of Esau. That was, remember, the story of Jacob and Esau. At one point, they were kind of known for wisdom. Shua was a son of Abraham by um, 
one of uh, Abraham's concubines named Keturah. You can read that in Genesis 25. And then was kind of the ancestor of an Arabian tribe. And Naamah was where Zophar came, the Nahamites. And that was a city also near Edom. And Edom, again, is just east of Israel. Okay. So what you can say is though that each of these kind of come from afar. And I think the key moral point to take away is what's the first thing they do when they witness grave suffering? They say nothing. They sit with him for seven days. If you ever experience someone in grave suffering, great suffering, many times words are not <laughs> the answer, right? Words can actually make it worse. I think that's actually a really beautiful point to take is that they just sat with him. They saw his suffering was great. Okay. Now, chapter three. This starts the large poetic, the massively large poetic section of the book of Job. Now, we're not going to cover everything. I'm just going to kind of give some general overviews of some of these cycles and what is said and kind of what are some of the themes. Um, where there's things that are important, I'll highlight them. And also just a few of the things that kind of uh, stuck out to me myself. So, again, to cover... Um, you know, 30-some pages of poetry in a half hour is just not realistic. But what can we take out of this? Well, chapter 3, we have Job then finally opens his mouth with the soliloquy. We hear from him a little bit more deeply after these seven days, and the man is struggling. And he sort of curses the day of his death. It says, um, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This is chapter 3, verse 1. And Job said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night which said, A man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. And without going through that whole chapter 3, many scholars have pointed out that that actually very much parallels Genesis chapter 1, where Genesis chapter 1 is God speaks and brings into creation, and where Job kind of blesses or sort of curses and does a reverse of creation. So where God says, let there be light, Job says, let there be darkness. Where God says, let there be, go forth and uh, be fruitful and multiply, he says in 3.7, let there be barrenness. And then he continues, let the stars of dawn be darkened, right? God fills the earth with the lights. And then even at the end, he says, for the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Chapter 3, verse 26, where Genesis once ends with rest. Job ends, I am not at rest. And so you can see the kind of pain and the undoing of creation in a sense. So there's some very beautiful parallels there. Now in chapter 4, we continue. This is where we have the first cycle. Each of the three friends are going to speak. First is Eliphaz. And what does Eliphaz generally say? In chapters 4 and 5, he basically says the key theme that God repays sin with evil. That if there is a sinner, they will be repaid with evil. Just a couple of lines to read. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, Think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And so basically saying that, yep, if you are innocent, you're not going to struggle. But that's not true, is at least what it seems, because, well, Job is struggling. 
So Eliphaz is implying that Job is not innocent. Um, he says in chapter 4, verse 17, Can a mortal man be righteous before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. So speaking of the fallen angels, is that they have been they have been found guilty. So who are you, Job, to find yourself not guilty? He says in chapter 5, verse 8, As for me, he starts to give advice to our friend Job. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Um, and then chapter 5, verse 17 is a very beautiful, beautiful passage where it says, um, Behold, happy is the man whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the chastening of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hands heal. It's a great line, great passage. And what you'll see as we go through some of these poems is, at the end of the day, not to spoil the alert, God isn't totally happy with some of the advice that his friends give. But at the same time, the friends ask a lot of rhetorical questions and do make a number of points. And actually, I would even argue the majority of what they say is true in principle, right? And so when you see this sort of things, you can gain so much from this poetry that when we are reproved or disciplined by God, it does hurt, but he heals. And he's actually the one who causes healing from that. So I think that's really important. But the problem is Eliphaz says that the reason Job is suffering is that he's guilty. He's a sinner and he just needs to admit as such. So Job replies in chapter 6 and 7. Basically, his reply in chapter 6 is, I am innocent. And basically, chapter 7 then speaks of the lowliness of man. And you'll actually see this in all of the first cycles. There's the sense of the lowliness of man, of just the depravity, the difficulty of our situation. And so, um, even in, in chapter 6, verse 24, we could point out a couple different things. I pointed out, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. So Job is wrestling with his, with his, um, with with what he is going through, right? But he is claiming to his innocence. Chapter seven, um, he speaks just how bad and just how lowly that man has it in general. Has not a man, has not man a hard service upon the earth, and are not his days like the days of a hireling? That's chapter seven, verse one. Chapter seven, verse sixteen. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, and that you set your mind upon him? Visit him every morning, and test him every moment. That what is man that you should care for him is repeated in Psalm 8 in particular, but other places throughout Scripture as well. This is a great question, too, that all the Scripture, what is it with mankind, this this life that we have, this existence, which seems so great. God seems to care so much for us, and yet we also experience suffering. Okay, chapter 8, we move to our friend Bildad, who then speaks for the first time. The general gist of what he says is in chapter 8, which is basically, God rewards the just with good. So as Eliphaz says, God repays sin with evil, Bildad says, God rewards the just with good. And so he says in chapter 8, verse 1, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great win? Does God pervert justice? 
or does the Almighty pervert the right? Um, he then says in chapter 13, Such are the path of all who forget God. The hope of the godless man shall perish. And so God rewards the just and he punishes the wicked. That's, that's Bildad's reply. So basically saying that God is just. How does Job reply? Once again, innocence, repeating innocence in chapter 9, and then speaking to the loneliness or the lowliness of man's life, right? He answers in 9 verse 1, Job answered, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be just before God? He says in verse 15, Though I am innocent, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. A very interesting passage there. So he's saying I'm innocent, but I also don't know how this is happening and how justice is, is done because I am innocent. So what do I appeal to? It's not justice. It's got to be mercy. I think that's also a very important passage to understand. The role of mercy. He says again in verse 20, Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Um, 28, I, became I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. So he's struggling with there. Chapter 10, once again, he goes back to this theme. He hates his life. He's struggling. In chapter 10, verse 1, I loathe my life. Again, reading this in the light of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, remember it is who Jesus who says, unless a man hates his life, he cannot be my disciple. So there is a sense where we're foreshadowing something of understanding suffering in the proper context in the light of the person of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 9, a very uh, common passage, it says, Remember that you have been made of clay, and will you turn me to dust again? Essentially, this is what we hear in Ash Wednesday. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But even Job's situation in chapter 10 is so, so bad, he's questioning his life itself. Why did you bring me forth from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me. So he's asking that as a, uh, as a question of, like, why am I even here? If you were just here to cause all this suffering, what, what is this about? Chapter 11, we have our third uh, friend coming in. Zophar gets his first chance to speak. And the essence of his message is God is omniscient and man is a sinner. So God is all-powerful. Um, he knows everything and man's a sinner. And so there's this inherent idea that it's man's fault if he doesn't understand that he's a sinner before God. It's kind of what his claim is coming at. Chapter 12 Job has uh, three chapters of response here, um, basically saying that God is almighty. He admits that. Um, that but at the same time, Job kind of wants his case to be heard because he's got this sense of innocence. But then he again ends in chapter 14 with the frailty of man. So that's kind of the gist of that chapter. A few things to point out. Um, chapter 12, verse 13 there's a great line, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. This sort of speaks of the power of God. There's also reminiscence of Matthew 16 and Isaiah 22 of, and in even the book of Revelation of the keys of the kingdom that will open and shut. Whatever God dictates will, will definitely come to be. But chapter 13, it's a very interesting chapter because you start to see 
that Job is essentially in a sort of lawsuit with God, that there's an accusation against him and he needs someone to help. And so actually he says in chapter 13, verse 3, I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. I desire to argue my case with God. He's so certain of his innocence that he doesn't know what's going on, but he is claiming his innocence. And so there is an accuser that is accusing him. That's his friends. That's Satan. And then he's also, if we have an accuser, we also need an advocate, a friend, a redeemer, right? And so that's also important because if we put this in the New Testament context, that word advocate is very important. The advocate of God is both Jesus himself and Jesus says, behold, I will send you another advocate, the Holy Spirit. So what is the advocate? The advocate is the one that helps us against the accuser. And so in this accusation, this sort of legal thing, Job's definitely struggling, but he says, I'm innocent. Um, Chapter 14 just again speaks to the frailty of man. There's a great question in chapter 14, verse 14. It says, if a man die... Shall he live again? So again, remember this is read before the resurrection of Christ and what it just seems like the best answer for Job is death. And so he asks this question. Well, if I die, do I, do I live again? A very important question, especially as we're concerned with justice and what is right. Okay, the second cycle happens again. We'll kind of skip through these. The second and third cycles much faster. The second cycle is Eliphaz chapter 15, man is a sinner and sin brings evil. Job's reply in chapter 16 and 17 is a personal lament. He starts to lament that um, how difficult this is and he um, actually begins to call for relief. So that's kind of the response for that second cycle of Eliphaz. Um, In chapter 16, it is worth taking a note that when when Job laments and also continues to maintain his innocence, you'll actually read this again. If you read this in the light of Christ, just think about Jesus' passion as you hear these words. Chapter 16, verse 10. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me instantly upon the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hand, and my prayer is pure. And so you have, again, this sort of crucifixion, passion, um, sense of Job's suffering. And yet there's a little bit of hope. We start to see hope a little bit at the end of this chapter 16. Even now, behold my witness, um, my advocate is in heaven and that he vouches for me is on high. I think that's so important too, right? Who does Christ appeal to in his resurrection? I've come to do the Father's will. I've come to do what is true. There's even a a section in chapter 16, I am one before whom men spit. So you see very clear parallels to Job's suffering is taking on the sufferings of Christ or better to say Christ fulfills the sufferings of Job perhaps. Chapter 18, we have Bildad's second speech. Basically, God punishes the wicked is what he says. Job's reply, once again, is that there's a personal lament. He's lamenting, but then he's got hope. Again, hope starts to creep in in this second cycle. 
one of the more famous passages in all of Job. It says um, in chapter 19, verse 25. Actually, we'll start with verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were graven in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. I know that my Redeemer lives. And so this hope of this Redeemer, a hope of an advocate, there's hope even in the face of death. And this is going to become very important, the theme of sight. What does he want after my skin has been destroyed? I want to see God, right? So much of this kind of struggle with Job is grasping to understand intellectually who God is, but hang on to this idea of sight because it is the sight of God that seems to be the answer we're looking for that we don't get on earth. Chapter 20, Zophar's second speech, the wicked suffer retribution is basically what he's saying. And then uh, Job's response is actually a great chapter to read. In chapter 21, Job responds, well, sometimes the wicked do prosper. <laughs> so Zophar is like, no, the wicked never succeed. And Job says, except the times they do. And you kind of seen that in your life too. Why do the wicked live and reach old age, grow mighty in power? He says um, in 21. And then it's great. What is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not there prosperity in their hand? So again, if you really spend some time with some of this poetry, there's some incredible questions and rhetorical questions and things you can take to prayer. So there's a reason this book is so popular because it's, it's hitting to the heart of what we've seen. That I thought you're a God of justice, but it doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to be satisfying my thirst for justice. And even at the end of chapter 21, it says, How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. So Job is struggling. Okay. The third cycle, Eliphaz speaks, and he basically says, man can't accuse God. Basically, this is not a place you want to be. Um, Job replies, I could be acquitted. I think I could actually go to court with God here, but I'm, I'm hemmed in. I don't know what to do. Darkness covers my face. At the end of chapter 23, there's a beautiful parallel to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the only psalm that ends in kind of despair, where it ends... My one companion is darkness. And that psalm is often prayed um, at uh, the end of uh, basically the understanding of the night Jesus was taken into captivity and was kept in jail overnight. His one companion was darkness. And uh, this is what Job says. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. For I am hemmed in by darkness and thick darkness covers my face. Chapter 25, Bildad comes back and just asks, is his speech is very short. Again, he kind of gets shorter but more pungent. How then can man be righteous before God? How can he who is born of woman be clean? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not clean in his sight. How much less man who is a maggot? 
and the Son of Man who is a worm? So this is a great question. How can he who is born of woman be clean? Now, again, if we understand this in the light of Christ, this is a great question. Mankind is, we are born into sin. And yet in the incarnation of Christ, there is born of Mary, this sinless one. And how beautiful on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. And it's this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This great cry of lament and despair. And one of the lines, kind of hidden lines of Psalm 122 is, but I am a worm and no man. And yet, what does this say in Job? And the son of man who is a worm. So the parallels again between Job and Christ and the crucifixion, it's all throughout. It's all throughout. Okay. Chapter 26, Job's reply basically saying, I'm still innocent, guys, but I just don't understand. Job kind of says, I don't understand God. I don't. Jumping to chapter 28, then his question is, I don't understand God, but I know that wisdom exists. So chapter 28 is a beautiful beautiful chapter to pray with because it's basically a beautiful ode to wisdom. Where shall I find wisdom? He says in 28.12, where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Verse 18, the price of wisdom is above pearls. But 20, where does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living. Again, that theme that we know wisdom exists, but I can't find it and it's beyond my sight. I can't see wisdom. God understands the way to it and he knows its place in 23. And he said to man in verse 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. We read in Proverbs the other day that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so you actually have that all the way back in Job, that to fear the Lord is wisdom and to remove yourself from evil. That's how I start to find understanding is to live the moral life. It's very interesting. This isn't the entirety of it, but this is the start of gaining wisdom. But still, Job doesn't know where exactly that comes from. And you see that in chapters 29 and 30, where he just laments. He recalls his past happiness in chapter 29 and then speaks of present suffering in chapter 30. Then chapter 31. This is again, if we haven't thought Job has doubled down on his claim to innocence, Chapter 31 is the longest oath in all of the Old Testament, where basically he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How could I look upon a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Does not calamity befall the unrighteous and disaster the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance. Let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has clung to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. If you go through this whole chapter, it's all these, if I have done this, then let bad things happen. And there's a beautiful kind of moral precision of Job. He's not just saying I'm a good person in general. He's being very specific. You know, if I have if I have rejected the cause of my manservant and my maidservant, he said, if I've treated anybody poorly, (laughs) 
Then I accept what will happen. But he makes an oath to his innocence. Very interesting. So, if you haven't figured it out yet, Job's suffering is not because he sinned. It's not because he did something wrong. Which is one of these key takeaways is that not all suffering is a direct punishment of sin. Far from it. That's a key takeaway from this book. All right. Chapter 32. Then our friend Elihu, the man, he is my God, Elihu. Um, Elihu is, is a person who comes in. Now it's interesting, there's a little bit of prose. It says in 32.1, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was angry at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he became angry. So Elihu is this kind of mysterious figure that comes in. He seems to be kind of in the background. He's going to defer to his elders for wisdom, but he gets angry because it seems that Job is just justifying himself. And in his worldview, he can't see, too, that Job is innocent. And so there's several chapters. We'll skip over it just for time's sake, largely. Um, he, again, accuses Job of, of being sinful. He kind of adds some, some flair to it. Um, Job speaks without knowledge, his words without insight, he says in 34. And Elihu basically condemns the self-righteousness of Job and proclaims God's justice. In 36, interestingly enough, Elihu speaks on behalf of God. Very interesting. He says, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Um, and he does kind of speak there in, of a certain valor, like a value to suffering. So it's kind of an interesting passage there. Um, he basically kind of ends with the greatness of God, that God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Can anyone understand him? And then he kind of ends, hear this, O Job. He's basically saying to Job, you can't accuse God. You can't accuse him. You, you cannot accuse him of, of any injustice. But it is kind of interesting when he, when he does that at the end of 37. Don't we do that all the time? <laughs> this is your fault, God. So um, we'll skip through some of the major takeaways from Elihu, but because we want to get to the very end here, which is in chapter 38, all of a sudden, God speaks. 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. So we kind of have for the first time in all of this, a true voice of authority that God is going to speak. This is the Lord. This is God who's, who's allowing all this to happen. Who's giving these freedom to kind of follow through. And then God is going to then initiate this conversation to Job. And what does he say? He says to Job, 38.4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together of all the sons of God, 
or sorry, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Jumping now to 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Jumping to 33. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? And so basically it continues on where God sort of silences Job saying, Job, you don't have the requisite knowledge to make any claim for me against my justice. It's also a really important thing, I think, to take away from this. As we sort of see injustice in the world, and it is so clear to see, the problem is, one of the problems is, we don't have the full picture. We don't know everything that's going on, and God does. If you think of all of the factors that God puts into play for every single human being and every single continent, every single bird flying, and every single, you start to see <laughs> the Lord kind of politely puts Job in his place and saying, Job, you don't have the ability to understand this. You don't know. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't necessarily attack or talk about his innocence, whether he's innocent or not, but he's speaking to his omnipotence. He's speaking to his order and basically that God knows what he's doing. In chapter 40, Job answers God. Well, actually, let's read chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So it's a great question. Don't argue with God. <laughs> we don't have the place to do that. But this is what Job answers God. So in chapter 40, verse 2. Then Job answered the Lord, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you declare to me. Okay. So basically Job's quick response, sorry, actually, Job's answers is just chapters 40, verse 3 through 5, where he has said, I've spoken, but I'm not going to answer. I am of small account. I am silent before you, God. It's kind of, a, kind of a unique but beautiful response. Job says, I'm silent before you. Well, that begins the second speech from God, and he begins this second speech. The second speech is kind of focused on two large creatures. A lot of people um, point out the two creatures are behemoth and leviathan. Behemoth, sometimes it's translated hippo, a large land creature. And leviathan is this large sea creature. Also, it's the same thing that we see like a sea serpent or a sea dragon. Um, these are figures of evil largely evil on land and evil in sea. So Leviathan is often compared to with Satan. And so as God speaks about these creatures, let's go to verse 41, chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you so to take him for your servant forever? He continues, No one is so, in verse 10, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now this is worth pointing out. 
what is God saying as this talk about behemoth and Leviathan? God is saying in many ways, that first part was, I've given order and you don't understand the fullness of the order. You can't. And then he speaks very concretely about evil, sin, through the realization of these sort of um, figures of behemoth and Leviathan. He said, can you draw Leviathan out with a fish hook? The answer is, no, Job can't. But the implication is, God can. The implication is, God knows the limits of evil. God will only allow evil to a certain extent. He will not allow evil be, to operate beyond the control of God. And I think that is an absolutely essential point for us to understand. There is real evil in the world that is not from God. There is real suffering in the world that is not a direct cause by God. But God in his providence allows this for some reason. He allows innocent suffering for some reason. We're going to get to that reason at the end of this book through the light of the New Testament. But without the New Testament, you're not going to actually get to that answer of why does God allow innocent suffering. But he's saying here, I still control evil. I know what I'm doing is essentially what God is saying. Chapter 42, we have Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." So a key thing happens here. What does Job do? He asserts faith in God, realizes that what he had been speaking is beyond his capacity to understand, and then at the end he repents in dust and ashes. Kind of very interesting because, again, Job hadn't done anything wrong, at least in the earlier sense, right? But then what is it that changes in Job to really take upon this true sense of humility and acceptance? And there's a very subtle line here. Chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What does that mean? How did Job actually see God? Did he see God? There's a great mystery. But understanding that God, that Job has a vision of God. He sees God. And what happens when Job sees God? He understands. He's no longer worried about his suffering. He says it makes sense. This is almost analogous to a great man, St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote beautifully about God in a number of passages. At the end of his life, St. Thomas actually stopped writing because he had a mystical vision of God. And St. Thomas, after he saw this vision, he said, all I have written is but straw. <laughs> Nothing that I have written can adequately describe what I now see in God. So there's good news and bad news of this. <laughs> Will we ever understand all of our sufferings on earth? No. Not until we enter into heaven, where heaven is described as the beatific vision, the vision of God. 
That's why so many of the Psalms talk about seeking the face of God, the face of God. Let me see your face, Lord, and that will be enough. Let me see your face and I shall live. That should be the greatest desire of our lives, to see God, to see God. Because once I see God, I will know. It will make sense. I will see perfect justice. I will see perfect mercy. Everything is restored in the sight of God. Let's continue because there's a few more things we can draw from this. After the Lord had spoken these words, this is 42 verse 7, to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you, according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand she donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after all this, Job lived a hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man full of days. Okay, a couple of key takeaways as we close to kind of wrap up this book. So, once he sees God, all is fine. He doesn't need anything else. And yet at the end, he, God does restore the temporal. Right? But it's almost an after effect, right? Because to see God is everything. Right? So it's never about the stuff. And that's also really important because that claim from Satan is that God, people only follow God because he gives you stuff. He's throwing that out and showing, no, it's about God himself. To see God is enough. God is perfectly lovable in himself and contains everything in himself. That is super important. Now, I think this is kind of one of the more hidden parts of this, which I think is absolutely essential to understand why innocent suffering does exist or what we do with innocent suffering. Because what happens then is then after this sight of God, God is angry with the three friends. And they said... God says to the three friends, you have not spoken of me. And what does he ask the three friends to do? To go have Job offer up a sacrifice. And so here we started with priestly Job offering sacrifice, and now we end with priestly Job offering a sacrifice. And whose prayer is heard? It is the prayer of Job, and it is the sacrifice of Job. This is what I think is so cool. What this teaches us, I think, 
is that the majority or if not all of innocent suffering, possibly all suffering as a whole in the world, is not about you. It's about another and has the ability to save another. What was Job's sufferings about? Saving his friends from error. Job bore his sufferings, his innocent sufferings, and saves his friends in a priestly act. Jesus Christ bore innocent suffering to save his friends in a priestly act. Job's prayer and sacrifice is accepted and it gives healing and right relationship for his friends. Christ's prayer and sacrifice is accepted. And so I just think that's huge. Your suffering, innocent suffering, is not about you. It's not about you. Because we point to Christ. He's the model of innocent suffering. And his suffering wasn't about him at all. It was actually for you. And so how do we bear innocent suffering when we experience it? I bear it for another. If you truly are in love with someone, you will do anything for them, including bearing suffering for them. To suffer alone in isolation is unbearable, but to suffer out of love for another is what gives meaning to suffering and ultimately meaning to life and even the sense of why there exists suffering at all. That God allows this suffering in the world because he knows it's the means by which he can save the world because it can be offered to the very same sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So not all suffering is direct punishment of sin. It's important to know that some suffering is just caused by evil, by evil actions, by evil spirits like Satan. But that God uses suffering both to test humans, to strengthen their holiness, that we don't have a capacity as humans to actually understand the fullness of why we suffer here or there, but that God can use it. And this priestly action, prayer for the other, I think is the absolute key to understand the book of Job. And I think is the best answer for innocent suffering in the world. So, that is the book of Job. And even, sorry, one final thought. Who else was Job's suffering for? Not just his three friends. His suffering, Job's suffering, was for you. Everyone here in this room, bear the fruit of Job's suffering because he showed you how to suffer, to suffer well, to speak to God, to then pray and offer sacrifice. So if you're thinking about Job historically as he's going through this, God says you can't imagine Job. You can't fathom the universe, but I can. Could Job have imagined that his unique individual sufferings would be a benefit for humanity, for all of humanity, for all of the world? If you can put Job's singular suffering on that scope, you're like, okay, <laughs> maybe it is just. Maybe it is um, even a sense um, beautiful in mercy that because Job suffered in this way, I know how I am to suffer. Because Job pointed the way to Christ and Christ is the fullness of everything, I know how to suffer, to offer it up for others. If that's not the greatest 
aspect or like truth of all of the wisdom literature, I'm not sure what else there is. Your sufferings are for another to offer them up for another, just as Christ did. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, you can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's T-M-E-R-G-E-N at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible.